and welcome to Get Me Another, a podcast where we explore those movies that followed in the wake of blockbuster hits and attempted to replicate their success. My name is Chris Iannacone, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Rob Lamorgis. Here I was again in the podcast studio. What was going to happen this time? I don't know, but sometimes you just have to step up to the mic <laughs> and do what you need to. Uh, This week is the last one for our Get Me Another Indiana Jones series, and it's it's been a really fascinating series. You know, for some of these longer ones, I I look back at the end and it feels like Raiders of the Lost Ark and High Road to China were like so long ago. And it's like we've had this journey that includes Treasure of the Four Crowns and Romancing the Stone and the Margariti triple feature. And it just... We've been very privileged to have some terrific guests on this series, and we want to thank them all for being part of the experience. But it's just, again, I always say it's a journey. Absolutely. And um, the further afield you get, the more ingrained all of these little, uh, all of the tropes of the specific, what is this, micro genre? I don't know what we would yeah. call it. But, <laughs> yeah, I mean, a trend or wave yeah. or cycle. Yeah, it's 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 it is it's a it's a curious it's a curious phenomenon, and uh, you know, it's again, it's one of the things I really like about the format and being able to then change to something completely different. Well, yes, because I'll say, I I love the, our show. I, otherwise, I wouldn't <laughs> waste time doing it. At the same time, for these longer ones, uh, even if I like a lot of the movies, uh, boy oh boy, am I ready to to turn the page into something yes yeah yeah (laughs) absolutely and we we are getting ready for our 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 next get me another series which uh which we are already at work on and we are going to reveal at the end of the show uh but we also have a bonus episode that will be coming up before that uh and that bonus episode which will be coming out three weeks from today will be the second in our don't get me another series which we started in the spring with ishtar In each Don't Get Me Another bonus episode, we'll explore a big movie that missed the mark and that Hollywood subsequently shunned. And these films are ones that might have been trendsetters, uh, but alas, it was just not to be. In our upcoming bonus episode, we will explore a film from the landmark summer of 1982, which saw a wide array of classic movies released in the span of just a few short months but it also gave us this military-themed sci-fi action film from the director of Smokey and the Bandit and the producer of The Godfather. We hope you'll join us for Don't Get Me Another Megaforce. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this because our first uh, Ishtar was a film that Chris and I had both seen and we actually really liked yes. and wanted to kind of discuss in uh, light of that. I have never seen Megaforce. I have, but it, it has been literal decades. And honestly, my memories of it are just sort of memes that have popped up on on, sure. on the internet in recent years. Um, so it's like, I'm very, I'm very, I'm very excited to dive back into it. Before that, we have two more films to discuss for this series, both of which came from Canon Films, the studio that gave us more Indiana Jones-inspired movies than any other. First up today is 1986's Firewalker. Turn left. Get off! In the proud history of adventure. I stand left! No heroes ever have been more courageous. What is that? How the hell should I know? Matt, shoot it! More faithful. You stupid Arab Jane. 
more optimistic. We keep sticking our necks out, and sooner or later somebody's gonna chop our heads off. Than Max Donegan and Leo Porter. We need a new plan. No, their friendship faces its greatest challenge. You're getting as bad as that fruitcake girl. Fruitcake? Wow. I'm a fruitcake? A woman of definite charms. You see, I've recently acquired a map, and I'm convinced it leads to a great amount of gold. And dangerous curiosity. I thought priests were supposed to be teetotalers. I thought nuns were supposed to be virgins. But Leo and Max have foiled countless encounters with death. I blame you for this. And they'd gladly run any risk. If there's ever time for a plan, it's now, Max. For the thrill of danger. The promise of excitement. And a mountain of treasure. There's better be some gold up here. Get your butt. I'm coming, I'm coming. Chuck Norris and Lou Gossett in Firewalker. Sipping champagne in fine restaurants, gambling in casinos. Man, I can't wait. I don't remember inviting you. Firewalker is the fourth of Canon's Indiana Jones-esque movies following 1983's Treasure of the Four Crowns and the back-to-back productions of King Solomon's Mines and Alan Quatermain and The Lost City of Gold. If you want to know more about these films and you haven't already, check out Get Me Another Indiana Jones Episodes 2 and 6. By the mid-1980s, Chuck Norris was one of Canon Film's most reliably bankable stars, having already made Missing in Action, Missing in Action 2, Invasion USA, and the Delta Force. So when Norris wanted to expand his range into more comic territory, he went to Messrs. Golan and Globus to back the project. Yes, and you can tell that very much so, because if you, again, this is 86, but, right? 1986. Yeah. Uh, Raiders came out in, what, 80? 81. Yeah, 81. So it's only five years later. Some cycles are six, about six-ish years, some are 10. This one seems to have been a tighter cycle yeah. following Raiders. So this is very much toward the end of this first wave of Raiders-inspired things. I mean, shoot, we... We've had Raiders-inspired stuff come out in the last couple years, uh, so it's not it's it will go forever. Yeah, if, and for anybody wondering if their if their favorite later Indiana Jones-inspired film will be covered, well, rest assured, uh, there are bonus episodes already in the works for for some of those things that you might be wondering. Oh, well, this yeah. came out in the '90s or or 21st century. Sure, sure, but you can also reach out. You know, if you if you want to suggest one, we love to hear from people. Absolutely, it's yeah. uh, we are we are available on social media. All at Get Me Another Pod. Uh, you can find us. We are not hard, but uh, but you can tell in this late stage of the game they start adding stuff to the stew in yes. order to try and keep it fresh. And this, to my mind, very clearly with the the comedic aspect and doing an Indiana Jones style movie as a buddy cop movie. Not a bad idea. Yes. They, they almost had it in Raiders anyway with Marion, but they yeah. didn't quite get to that level. But this very clearly is someone pitched uh, Indiana Jones meets Lethal Weapon. Yes. Um, or, or even 48 or, Hours. Yeah. Is, or 48 is, Hours. Yeah. yeah. It's, yeah. it's, uh, it's interesting. The film was written by Robert Gosnell and directed by J. Lee Thompson, who had already worked in similar territory for canon films with King Solomon's Minds. In addition to Chuck Norris, Firewalker also stars Louis Gossett Jr., Melody Anderson, Sonny Landham, Will Sampson, and John Rhys-Davies. This is a movie I definitely saw 
back in the day and multiple times on home video. But my memory of it is was very vague before revisiting it this time. It had been a while. And it's funny because it's the movie itself is kind of vague. Like it doesn't have the brilliance of Raiders. It doesn't have the bizarreness of Treasure of the Four Crowns. It's just kind of there. And uh, what realized, or I realized watching this movie is that it's got a, actually a ton of unrealized potential. And we'll talk about that as we go through. But this movie, I think, could have been something extraordinary, but it doesn't quite reach that that mark. It's But it was, it was going in a real interesting direction. Yeah, I mean, my headline for Firewalker is, yeah, it's, it's fine. <laughs> yeah, put that on the poster. Firewalker. Yeah, it's yeah, fine. I'm getting quoted for this one. But, uh. <laughs> You know, people complain, uh, including you, that uh, it, with, you know, opinions nowadays, and I, I sometimes can fall into this trap, yes. that either something's the best thing ever, or it's the worst thing ever. Yes, yes. Uh, I try not, I, we don't do a ton of worst thing ever on the show, although I feel we've had a greater percentage during this uh, series yeah, than any yeah, other. I, I, I agree. Uh, but yes. I, I blame the films in this case. But in any yes. case, for the most part. <laughs> the hyperbole culture lends itself to yeah. the greatest or, be- you know, greatest or worst. It's like, oh, yeah. you know. And frankly, most things fall in the middle. And yes. I think this is in the middle. It's Firewalker like, is definitely in the middle. It's not a terrible way to spend, uh, you know, an hour and 40 minutes if you're. Yeah. Although around. it should be an hour and thirty, and I could, I, we'll get into exactly why are they yes. sh- what they should have cut and well, why. We both I, know, and, I, and it was yeah. one of my favorite actors too. But yes, it was so but it, 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 yeah. yes, we'll get to that. Chuck Norris and Louis Gossett Jr. play treasure hunters Max Donegan and Leo Porter, who, when the movie opens, have been treasure hunting in the treasure hunting game for a while. Specifically, they've done fifteen expeditions over ten years, but only three made money. Leo is a former school teacher and appears to be the brains behind the pair. Max is implied to be former military, although we don't get a whole lot of specifics. The movie opens and they're being chased through the desert in a Jeep by a group of what I have to say were stereotypical Middle Easterners in dune buggies. Uh, And this won't be the last stereo racial or ethnic stereotype that this movie engages in. You know, it's a canon film from the 80s. So what are you going to do? It's just kind of uh, it's kind of baked in. But the chase itself is great. And, you know, it's a great way to like open sort of, you know, in the middle of things, in the action. Yeah. And from the get go here, you get this. This movie's not just, you know, comedic. This movie is making fun of the tropes of the convention, something yes. that also often comes at the end of the cycle, where when they get captured to to jump about a minute ahead of the sequence. <laughs> yes. And the uh, the bad guy whom they know, clearly. The General, played by Richard Lee Sung. Yeah, Max tells Leo, I bet he's going to say something like, yeah, gentlemen, we meet again. I think oh, you you actually wise. wrote down the quote. I didn't, uh, there, there you uh, go. Yeah, gentlemen, well, we I meet again. I wasn't going to remember it, and that was correct. <laughs> Uh, yeah, he's he's you know it's funny because you have the, this group of Middle Easterners being led by uh, you know a, a guy who uh, an Asian man who appears to be in like a Chinese military uniform, and there's clearly like this this history and beef. Uh, I love the moment where he puts the bottle of the most '80s bottled water in in Max's hand to taunt him. That's Perrier, folks. That was that was the bottled water of the 80s. For sparkling, but Evian well, was pretty 80s. Well, too, yes, for that's flat. also for flat. For, but yes. you know, Evian didn't come in glass, which is the key here. Oh. I think you went to the wrong country club. <laughs> <laughs> 
don't know. I have no idea if Evian came in black. There we go. Oh, but Chuck Norris, he does this great thing where he squeezes the one hand. He he squeezes the glass. It, it, the, the bottle explodes, and he's able to use the shards to cut him and uh, him and Leo free. It's a great, honestly, the opening of this movie is terrific. It's, it's, it's a great start. No, it's a fun little sequence. I do love that, uh, you know, everyone knows each other, and you're just off and running. Uh, we're about to get our character who you could say is the audience surrogate who will yeah. help other characters to need to explain some things to orient us a little bit although frankly not that much yeah. you know and then also uh you know the one problem i had with this beginning was it was very hard to see some of the action uh because chuck norris's teeth were blinding me they were so <laughs> white and bright. so white and in the desert in the sunlight oh my, oh God. my goodness i had to yeah. turn down the brightness on the tv <laughs> The next thing you know, Max and Leo are back at their regular hangout, Tubbs Bar in Arizona, talking about their troubles as treasure hunters. And they are approached by Patricia Goodwin, played by Melody Anderson, who will, to me, forever be Dale Arden in Flash Gordon. Uh, and and she's, she's terrific in this movie, too. Um, she claims to have a map that leads to a lost treasure of gold is buried in the mountains nearby. And she also claims that a red cyclops is pursuing her and the treasure. And despite the cyclops bit, Max and Leo take the gig. Um, yeah, and I, I was just going to say, you know, this is where you start to, it starts to hint that there may be supernatural things going on in this movie, yes. right? A a not un-Raiders-like trope to have in your film. Uh, but I, I can also say, and, and some of you may not be very surprised, even if you haven't seen this movie, oh boy, does the uh, Red Cyclops line come back to bite this movie in the ass in a, in a big, big way, because it is... Well, it, it, it what is clear is... The Saint is... Crow. <laughs> the Saint Crow is all yeah, I'll say it's for not, now. It is, not a, it is not a literal Red Cyclops. What it is is a Native American man who wears an eye patch. They never address the fact that she said red. And yeah. they, they for, forget the racism of it. But in yeah. that moment, in this moment here, it's played like fire engine red Cyclops, like yeah. chasing Ulysses <laughs> or something. And they never come back to explain why she didn't phrase it in a way that was just like, oh, by the way, I mean, I no, that's a guy. I'm just being racist. <laughs> like... <laughs> I'm not crazy. I'm not saying it's a real Cyclops. Like, I don't get it. Or was it her vision being racist? Like, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Clearly, Patricia has psychic visions. It's, but what it's interesting about the movie is it doesn't, it's not on the nose about it. Like, it's, it doesn't, like, she doesn't come out and explain, oh, I'm a psychic. You know, she's just like, yeah. she says things like the red Cyclops. And later she has a vision of old people sleeping and they go into the cave and there's a bunch of skeletons they find the cave. So I don't know, maybe she's just having weird dreams and interpreting them. You know, in, yeah. in odd ways. So the group follows the map to the mountain where they find a not very well-hidden cave. Uh, and there's a moment that I actually thought was genuinely funny when Max and Leo are searching the cave, which has both Aztec and Mayan artwork on the wall. And they go into this other chamber and they find Patricia lounging on what looks like an altar, like, with, like wearing a skull and with sunglasses on the skull. And I'm just like... That is insane that you would just pick up a skull that you found in a tomb and just put it on your head. Like as a gag. As a gag. Joshing around. <laughs> just having fun in the tomb. I mean, um, yeah, it's just to like wait, get what? To that, and to get to that, um, you had a really nice shot to separate them. 
Yes. Uh, you had a reverse Michael Myers <laughs> where Patricia's standing in the cave talking to them and uh, it's kind of dark by the cave wall behind her and she just slowly moves backward yeah. into the darkness. No one's grabbing her, but she's just creepily walking backwards. It's a cool shot. It is. I don't know why she's doing it, but it's fun to watch. It is. And then are you going to get to the sh- the... The, the shooting oh yeah oh absolutely yeah i'm gonna get to the, i'm gonna get to the shooting um yeah, well first of all, in that skull that she she had put on her head they find a, a dagger with a ruby in the pummel and that well that's important that will become important and later gold. it's, it's gold kind dagger, of a, right? it's a gold dagger it, it it's kind of the it's the kind of the equivalent of the headpiece of the staff of raw in raiders like it's the it's the first bit they find of of the of what they will later be the larger you know, goal and 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 at the lower level, uh, Max and Leo were kind of thinking this was a bust, and they're gonna no, they're gonna end the quest for the gold, right? Finding this dagger. Now they believe, yes, but not in not in what's really going on. They just believe in gold now that there may be gold. This lady's not crazy, exactly. Now that now that at least her story is not bullshit. Yes, that's. But so you have this scene in in they're in this cave and. You have a scene. It's actually very similar to one released more than 20 years later in Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, where the group is attacked by what appear to be defenders of the cave. Now, these people are dressed in the most stereotypical Indian garb that you can imagine. They're complete with feathers and war paint, and they appear to be defenders of the cave. I say we appear because we never really find out for sure. Like, Leo immediately tells Max to shoot him. Like, oh, what yeah. should I do? Shoot him! <laughs> Which she does! Well, actually, or at least I, tries I, to! I have to... Uh, there's a small correction here, oh. Chris. Oh, my. Because I was so taken aback by the language that I, I wrote this down. He does not tell uh, him to shoot him. What is that? How the hell should I know? That will shoot it. Shoot it! Damn! You know, you are the worst shot I have ever seen. He says, shoot it. Oh. Oh yeah, that's and, and like yeah, it and it. I think it gets yeah. repeated twice. Uh, you want to talk about dehumanizing? Uh, that is not yeah, not not great. Yeah, not great. Yeah, it's and of course here they they establish the gag that uh, Max, despite being former military, uh, is a lousy shot, and the only shot that he makes successfully is when it like ricochets off a bunch of different things and yes. kills one and of that the guys. Ricochet has like a Bugs Bunny Looney Tunes yes. sound effect that goes. Pew! Yes, yes, it is absolutely that. And Max, throughout this whole thing, although he does get to kick a few people because it is Chuck Norris after all. Well, yeah. Um, they do play a bit with, uh, and I know, Chris, this will be sacrilege to your ears, so just cover them. <laughs> uh, I, it, 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 they're playing with the idea almost of him being Jack Burton-esque from Little Trouble in, uh, Big Trouble in Little China. I know we don't, I'm not saying how successful it is, but... Where he's the he's the hero who's not very you know adept all the time, and they play it for laughs. It's funny you should say that because it was much. It was later in the movie. It wasn't the later in the movie. I started to think about it, and I said to myself, "Firewalker is a cousin to another movie that came out in 1986, both featuring white main characters who are actually not very good at what they do and depend on their buddies who are persons of color." 
and are far more competent. Firewalker is a lesser Indiana Jones flavored Big Trouble in Little China. I absolutely, I okay, absolutely yeah. thought it. Yeah. And it was like yeah. under different circumstances, it could have harnessed that potential even better. There's a couple of reasons why it didn't. One is that Jay Lee Thompson, good of a director as he was, because he, he has now done three Get Me Another films, uh, was no John Carpenter. And even more so, Chuck Norris was no Kurt Russell. Like, whereas Kurt Russell in, in Big Trouble Little China brilliantly walks the line between playing things with a straight face and being in on the joke, I'm not sure Norris has ever been on any joke. Yeah, and I don't, you know, I would also hypothesize just from his career work after this yeah. that Mr. Norris uh, wouldn't be comfortable going as far at, as Kurt Russell did uh, with letting the, the character they're playing look the fool. There's no question. There's no question that's true. But I will, to, in all fairness, right, you know, having said that, there are some moments, including one later down that we're going to talk about that I actually really liked, where he does he does let Max look pretty foolish in this movie. Yes. But it's up to a point. Up to a point. Yeah. But yeah. It, you know, but it's a, you know, there are some real moments. Including this one, where he can't shoot a guy point blank. Yes, and it's and it's played for laughs. And it's played for yeah. And and the last at the end of this scene, there's like the last guy of the of the cave defenders is on the edge of a cliff. And and what happens? This Max is wielding the dagger with the with the ruby, and the ruby starts to glow. And the guy, the last guy, just looks at it and jumps off the cliff to his death. And why does he do that? We still have no idea. We have no explanation for that. And and the amount of light, I have to say, the amount of light that was given off by the little ruby in the pommel, which is kind of glowing slightly, yeah. is completely incongruous with the, like, his face is bathed in red light. <laughs> like, oh my God. Who are these people? Were they living there? Do they just hang out waiting for tomb robbers? We'll never know, and Max and Leo don't care. No, yeah. That was a MacGuffin level of light reflected on that dude's face. <laughs> It was like the suitcase from Pulp Fiction. Or the Bloodstone. Or the Bloodstone. <laughs> well, the Bloodstone's huge. Ruby, yes. Yeah. I wish the knife did more in this movie. Yes. That's one thing. If you want to talk about the, the dumbest things ever, I'm like, I, I wish it, they did more with the knife. If you're going to have like a cool, and the knife's cool. It's cool. So they go, they need to learn more about the knife. So they go to this Native American named Tall Eagle to find more about the knife. And and Tall Eagle is played by Will Sampson, who famously played Chief Bromden in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. This was his final yeah. film role. Uh, and, and he's, he's great. great. He's great. Yeah. Like, yeah. He's, he's terrific. But Rob, what do they bring to Tall Eagle in exchange for... For his wisdom. Let me see. Well, I, I can't quite remember, but I'll just check history. Surely there's one thing, given the history of the United States of America, oh, that they would not have brought as a gift, right? Oh, no. That it's just like, you just wouldn't do that. You wouldn't do right? that. No, it's, it's, it would be no. bad form. It would be, uh, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't just walk in there, you know, with a bottle of Jim Beam. Oh, that's exactly what they did. Yeah. And, and also insulting because... You know, Jim Beam's lower quality, folks. You, well, you, yeah. <laughs> Top of it, it's not even like Jack Daniels. At least or go in with like, uh, you know, I mean, it's yeah. bourbon at least, I believe, being <laughs> his actual bourbon, not Tennessee whiskey. But uh, like, get at least some Buffalo Trace. Come on, man. Something. Uh, oh, God. Yeah, it's it was just that. I was just like, oh, my God. I've been paid off by big bourbon, apparently. <laughs> I just keep talking about bourbon this whole series. <laughs> I guess that's not struck work, is it? <laughs> 
I want some of that. I want some of that Jack Daniels money, man. Like, let's we'll, yeah. we'll 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 shill for Jack Daniels, no problem. Um, no, it's got to be something I like, so that when we get the free product, I can well. actually use it. Yeah. <laughs> um, Tall Eagle tells them the legend of the Firewalker about an Aztec priest who hides a treasure of gold and then quote flew away to the sun, and he also warns them of the coyote who is following them. And what I love is the moment where he talks about the great spirit and a red light comes on from underneath him and a very, very weak wind machine. And it's just sort of like, <laughs> it's just, it's, just it's, the, it, it's, it's the silliest effect. It's amazing, yeah. but it's the silliest effect. This is, you know, this, this scene is a great one to talk about just with the, the tone of the movie and what it's trying to do. Because for, for all of the stuff that we talked about, you know, where perhaps they are uh, trafficking in tropes or also being unaware of history mm-hmm. and how they're using uh, Indian characters in this movie. This also is a movie that is going after tropes and poking fun at all that junk. Yes. So even in this scene, uh, he is making fun of them, saying things like, you know, white men bearing gifts, you know, uh, that always means trouble. I don't know how Tonto did it. When they leave yeah. and he's just like, they're yeah. kind of annoying to him. Um, it's an odd bird in, you know, I, I don't know if it's quite, you, you look at something like big trouble, which it, it's hard for me not to, Yeah, where that one is also trafficking in certain stereotypes, at least cinematic ones, right. uh, at least tropes from their, from, uh, like Hong Kong movies and things, if nothing else. And it's, it's weird in that. I don't think that Firewalker is necessarily mean spirited. No, uh, it doesn't never comes across that way where some of the films we've looked at, it did come across as right. spirited. It's just more thoughtless. It's just more like, yeah, you know, like, Oh, well, yeah, you know, it's, they just needed like a couple more weeks on the script or a little more time on set, which you're not getting with no. the canon. No. I get that. Uh, either you're not getting either of those things. So it, but it's weird. Uh, and I think it contributes to what you were talking about where you, you can see the great version of this movie. Yeah. But you know, this, this one's, this one's all right. It's all right. You know, like I, I'm not, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a chore, you know, it, it was, uh, you know, which is, I can't say the same about our second <laughs> film. We'll get to that. Obviously. I knew, but, I knew oh you were getting God. in there. Uh, we'll get to that. But like, but it, it's just, it's like, Oh, there, there is, it's the 1.0 version of something that could have been uh, a, a lot better. Oh, I want to mention one last thing with, uh, with tall Eagle. He gives Patricia a small bag that he says is filled with magic that will come back later kind of uh kind of and <laughs> is it weird to say that a movie has a missed opportunity and i'm glad it missed it because it's hilarious yes <laughs> yeah, it's not weird it's, it's absolutely 100 percent true <laughs> yes i'm like i don't know that they could have done anything better so that we'll no. get to that soon <laughs> So they go back to their hotel and they decide they're going to look for the Firewalker's gold in the fictional Central American country of San Miguel. And they do this because Patricia stabs a map with the dagger. And when she does it, honestly, I watched that scene and at first I thought the the character was drunk. And just like, oh, well, let's go there. And then I, it was not later until I realized, oh no, she's in like a psychic trance or something like that. That's yeah. how she's getting her info. But I'm like, she almost played it as kind of drunk. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, and also, you know, the context wasn't set up. Right. So we we did not know 
is she, you know, we were not set up as to, oh, to see it as a trance. And it kind of comes out of nowhere as far as the movie goes. And thus the confusion until you're a little into it and you're like, oh, this is what they're doing. Yes, yes. Um, that night, Max is drugged by a woman. Uh, now, that, now, let me explain the circumstances of how Max is drugged. Now, you think, oh, did she put something in his drink? Did she, did she maybe inject him and he didn't even realize it? No, no. I bring a potion from Tall Eagle. He has cast a spell to protect you from evil. I never turned out a good potion. She hands him an unmarked gourd and he just drinks from it. Guys, safety tip. Don't drink from unmarked gourds given to you by women you don't know. That's just a good general policy. Now, I'm I'm going to push back on this one, Chris. <laughs> Always drink from unmarked yeah. gourds from women you don't know. <laughs> I, when I was on my La Luna de Miel in uh, Buenos Aires, Argentina, there uh, it is a whole culture of drinking your uh, your yerba, your mate, oh. out of gourds. Uh, they, you know, you're not using all of the plastic and stuff. People will sometimes can have their own. It's a little, you know, anyway, and you have the straw. It's really, it's really I just great. want it it's marked. Just, I want someone to write it like I masking know. tape. You've been conditioned by the man to want <laughs> the corporate branded drink cups. I have. Just because there's a green mermaid on it doesn't mean it's not going <laughs> to be drugging you, dude. Where's that barista from? Who is that person? Who do they really work for? <laughs> It's, you never know. You just don't know. You Thankfully, don't know. Patricia stops this woman before she can kill Max. And and what do they do? They lock her in a room so they can figure out what to do with her. Um, but in the morning, she's turned into a snake. Or at least that's the implication. There's no morphing going on here. This was just a little early for morphing, and they didn't quite have the budget for that. But the implication, you look like she's gone in the room, and then you see in the rafters a giant snake. So I guess she turned into a snake. Yeah, the other big thing that happens here, and look, at least they they did a marker. It's, you know, how successful it is is, is a little debatable. But uh, Max and Patricia... It hasn't been much word jousting because they it's not like they instantly disliked each other, but they're right. kind of along for the ride. Right. But saving him and then kind of watching over Max as he's like in his fever dream from the drug that night. Yes. Has activated a little, uh, you know, uh, Florence Nightingale kind of love in Patricia for Max. So at least, yeah, at least there's technically a reason it happens. There's really not much else uh, as a reason. Well, it's, it's undercut by the fact, <laughs> well, yes. Yes, by the fact that Chuck Norris has no chemistry with anybody. Like the, the big, the big issue with Firewalker is that Chuck Norris is kind of the dull center of this movie. And it's ironic because obviously he's the guy, he found this project, he brought it to Canon and, and, and to him and the film's credit, he's surrounded by some really good actors, particularly Louis Gossett Jr., who is just oh, great. Yes. I, yes. I also think Melody Anderson is is great. Uh, she's she is 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 fantastic and adorable. And I'm wondering why she wasn't in more stuff. Like she's in Flash Gordon and this, a few yeah. other films. And you know, it's you know, it's just the the, the fickle the fickleness of Hollywood. Uh, that said, she was a regular on Manimal. There you go. So that's something. I mean, the candle that burns the brightest. Yeah, but um, I'll again. I guess this is the this is the episode I'm going to disagree with you a lot, <laughs> but but not not that harshly. Um, I don't disagree that of of the main cast and a lot of the cast that maybe Norris is 
the least interesting. I think part of that's a little of the character too. Yeah. They don't go quite as far as I would want them to. But I, I would say also that th- there is the bad part of grading on a curve. Like for me, Chuck Norris isn't bad in this movie. He's perfectly serviceable. But when you have uh, people operating at a higher level who are frankly yes. probably been trained actors their whole damn lives. Right. And he came to it later. It's... Look, I don't. I can't believe I'm being an apologist for Chuck Norris right now. It's amazing. I did not expect that when I woke up this morning. I swear to God. Well, we're having dinner on Tuesday, so I'm, <laughs> I'm going to get my ass kicked if I don't. But, <laughs> but you know what I'm saying, though. Like re- realistically, he's he's not terrible. It's just you have a lot of really really good actors around him, and it's yeah. you know it's tough when you're doing that. I, and I get that. And what I'm saying is that the, 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 the movie tries its damnedest to create chemistry between, and it uh, between yeah. Max and Patricia and it can. And, and there's, there's one scene in the hotel. Uh, basically after, after uh, Max is drunk from the gourd and passed out, there's, there's a scene where it's just uh, Leo and Patricia kind of talking and there's more chemistry between the two of them in that one scene than in her and Chuck Norris in the whole movie. So it's just, I mean, listen, Chuck Norris gets credit for trying to stretch, but he didn't really get there, you know? Yeah. uh, But that scene that you're talking about, that's the scene where I was, uh, I thought to myself, man, if Leo was the lead in this movie, I think I'd like it, uh, you know, just that much more because that's also unfair because you know, Louis Gossett Jr. as a as a child of the '80s, uh, he holds a special place in my heart because there there were such specific films. You know, Iron Eagle, Enemy Mine, um, yeah. frankly, even Officer and a Gentleman, yeah, which I, for which he won the Academy Award. Yeah, oh, Love lifts us up where we belong, Rob. Yeah, and so like he as an actor, that man holds a very special nostalgic place. And I'm like, what if I what if I had another Louis Gossett Jr. movie <laughs> that that could be that for me? So it's unfair all around to everyone. <laughs> so they travel down to San Miguel and they, and they land there. Um, we we have a scene where, <laughs> where they're in the they're in the hotel there, and you know Max and Leo are bickering the way they do, and you know Max uh, calls calls him a daggam sissy, a daggam sissy, and then and then you know uh, Patricia overhears him calling her a a fruitcake girl, and it's just like you know you know Max just has a way with everybody. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he does, doesn't he? Uh, that said, there there is one area where Chuck Norris excels, and that is kicking ass. Yep, which he does in. There's a bar fight in this in the middle of this movie where it is just one of the most over the top bar fight. It's it's fantastic. Like basically, he he starts waving around a hundred dollar bill and asking for information, and Chuck Norris ends up like beating up like a dozen guys and it's it is it is a it is a fantastic bar fight movie playing to chuck norris's strengths absolutely and and the lead into it is playing toward the poking fun at him because mm-hmm. he keeps upping the amount of money and waving it around while he's standing yeah like, he starts with twenty dollars and then forty dollars and leo keeps saying like don't wave the money around this is a bad idea it's yeah. it's it's having its cake and eating it too and kicking that cake in the ass yes yes Yes, it is. Uh, they they get the information. They, they're told they're going to have to go to a village uh, in the interior of the country. In order to get to that village, they need to take a train. We have another train sequence. Americans on trains because, you know, uh, they hate them. And how do they get there? They have to disguise themselves, Rob. They go undercover. 
Oh, I'm turning off the 80s trope alarm. Uh, <laughs> yes, wearing a costume disguise on a train. Uh, okay, all right. We got that on the board now. It, it's one step away from trading places. I'm not even sure if it's a full step. But you yes. know, it's like it's a, it's a stumble <laughs> away from trading. They are all dressed, by the way. Max and Lee are dressed as priests. And, and Melanie Anderson uh, is dressed as a nun. It's so weird. It's just so weird. And it's it's a prologue. They're in these costumes yeah. for a long time. Well, yeah, but they're just hanging out. It's not like they're going to have to give any last rites or something to anyone. Uh, they're not going to have <laughs> yes. to perform any Catholic ceremonies and then mutter gibberish in Latin. Yes, they have to do all of yes. those things. And uh, it's... <laughs> I mean, it plays funny. It's oh, I will no. give it that. You know, it totally. Which, uh, although I will say, missed opportunity to actually use pig Latin. But um. yeah, <laughs> if you're gonna go, go all the way. Yeah, it's yeah. Oh, uh, it's around this. Also, we get at this point, like uh, we're getting more of the coyote, the guy who who the guy who directed them to this village uh, is actually working for the coyote, and uh, and and the coyote kills him now. I want to say, first of all, the the coyote is played by Sonny Landham, who most people will remember as Billy from Predator, which came out a year later. And uh, he's used in this movie much the way, much the same way that from Russia with Love uses Robert Shaw, where he's kind of constant, a constant presence like on the periphery and you don't know, you know, like, is he trying to stop them? Is it more complicated than that? It's really interesting. What is also interesting is the fact that he's wearing this eye patch, which I read and I read this uh, online that the eye patch changes sides of his face, changes the eye. And I was like, that can't be true. I actually went back and, and rewatched all of the scenes with him. And sure enough, it absolutely changes eyes. And there's one moment where, like, the guy who he's going to kill moves the eye patch from one eye to the next. <laughs> it's amazing. I don't know. I don't know if that's just a mistake or if it's just to show that, like, this guy's really crazy. He wears an eye patch and he doesn't even need it. <laughs> they, they arrive at this village, um, which has basically been destroyed by the military, who are still there. And the trio is chased through, like, banana fields. And there's a very weird bit. Uh, where Patricia is nearly raped by one of the soldiers. Austin Trunick mentioned this moment when we were talking about King Solomon's Mines a few episodes ago, and it is as odd as I was warned to be. Because, again, this is a silly movie. It is a comedy. Yes. Yeah, it, he, gets his, he gets his pants down. Now, I, I will say this. Unlike the scene in King Solomon's Mines where it was just a sort of verbal thing, like, again, here he, he, the soldier gets his pants down, but at... There is also agency on the point of Patricia as her, she sort of fakes passing out as a ruse to get a drop on the guy. She's got a gun. She just needs the chance to point it at him. So it, it, it's it's still weird and out of place, but I guess it's got at least her her acting, her making a choice to sort of, I'm going to try and uh, get, the, I'm going to play possum and get this guy and, and then pull the gun on, which she successfully does. Yeah, I mean, it's not, we've seen other uh, oh, yeah. rape scenes in this series that are far worse and far more out of place. It's unnecessary. You don't need it. And it, it's, it's still, it's is, weird. Yeah, it is. It's, it's weird and out of place. Um, eventually the, the, the group is captured by rebels and they're about to be beheaded. We know this because the, the rebels uh, chop two giant melons in front of them. Um, 
and, you know, in order to to let them know, oh, we're going to chop off your head. And I'm like, why did you even waste those melons? You just put them on the ground. You can't eat those now. Um, got to test the blade. You don't. Yeah. I mean, because you don't want the egg on your face if you come down to behead them, and it's like, oopsie. Uh. <laughs> but they're rescued by John Rhys Davies' character, a of uh, a, 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 a wayward military man who is old friends with Max named Corky, which, you know, that's an unfortunate name in general. Um, It leads to an unfortunate wardrobe choice. Unfortunate wardrobe. He's got this big wide brimmed jungle hat and attached via strings hanging down like in front of his face, like low. Corks. Corks. From from wine bottles, presumably. A lot of them. Now, now, for once, John Rhys Davies is not playing. For the first time in this series, the Welsh actor John Rhys Davies is not playing a Middle Easterner. Although I think I detected a, a Texas accent that kind of came and went at various points. I wasn't sure. It's so weird. Yeah, because the name is uh, is Corker, right? Is the last name of the character or something. Yeah. So presumably. Well, he's he's wearing a full U.S. Marine dress uniform. So he's presumably. Weird. No, yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. you know. He's he basically this guy has gone full Colonel Kurtz and he's hosting an outdoor banquet and, you know, in the rain, no less. And it's, you know, it's uh, it's there's some interesting character stuff that comes out here, but not really. But the problem with this scene is that it stops the movie cold just as we're getting to, to the third act. So it's it, or the end of the act, two, it, the, the interlude with Corky. Rob, is like the French plantation sequence from Apocalypse Now that Coppola wisely cut out of the original version and that kept trying to put back in. That scene is fine in and of itself, just as John Rhys-Davies is fine here, but it just, it brings the movie to an absolute dead stop. Yeah, this is definitely the section of the movie that really veers into and then uh, (laughs) storytelling. Yes. Yes. And then the military chases them, and then they get away, and then they get captured again, and then it turns out their friend is the military, and then they have a party, and that, <laughs> and nothing yes. really fall uh, follows. There, there's no, there's no real good storytelling cause and effect. And I'd say overall, this is not a super propulsive movie. No, but it moves enough until you reach this point. I mean, let me say this again, compared to our next movie, this movie is like, it moves like lightning. Like it's, uh, (laughs) that's something else, but, but yeah, he, uh, Corky gives them like this camouflage VW beetle. Uh, and then, you know, like to, to, to take them on the rest of their journey, they stop by a river where presumably Leo disappears. (laughs) Yes. And they find like his glasses and, and blood and there's like a crocodile and they just, they kind of assume that, you know, he got eaten. They don't really look for him very long. Nope. Uh, Max's distress at his best friend's apparent death stretches Norris's acting ability beyond its limit. It's just, it's more petulant than anything else. <laughs> like it's- for sure. And I forgot at the moment that you were talking about when uh, Patricia winds up hugging uh, Max at one point to console him and you get this you crane up yeah and it is a slow ass crane up and then <laughs> once is. the crane is up you hold it for a while I'm like are, yeah. they, are they going like for touch of evil here not for tracking ship I'm like what, what is going on this is crazy yeah. to me. they're they're not they're not going for touch of evil so they they on the other side of the river, they find the temple from the cave drawings that they had found. And uh, they go inside the temple 
and they find Leo tied up over boiling water, uh, as well as the coyote waiting. And I have no idea. This is an ancient temple, and I have no idea how the, the water is being heated to a boil, nor what mechanism the stone doors are sliding open and closed. There's a stone throne that turns around. It's awesome. I have no idea how it works. Yeah. Well, and that boiling water, it, it just, uh, I mean, they spend really. spend a lot of time in that room. A lot Leo, of time. Leo is hanging over a punch bowl with dry ice uh, at a Halloween party <laughs> is what yeah. is really going on. Yeah. <laughs> like it's, yeah, it's, it's and, and there's a lot of time with them getting out of that room because the coyote intends to kill Patricia in a ritual sacrifice that will he believes will allow him to fly to the sun and walk among the fire. Uh, which again invites the comparison to the climax of Big Trouble in Little China, where you yeah. have the heroine, you know, about the, you know, being, you know, the potential being sacrificed for some kind of ritual. Uh, we're never told why it has to be Patricia specifically, although I will point out that she does have green eyes. Ah, uh, wait, really? Yeah. Uh, there you go. So uh, the finale of this film, it feels very sparse. It's like Leo and Max and Patricia and the Coyote all kind of running around this otherwise empty temple. Yellowhair, the Fortress of Gold, had more extras for their their temple finale than, uh, than this movie. It just feels like, hey, we got the soundstage. We got the principal actors. Let's just go. We don't. The Coyote doesn't need a posse. No, nor does he have one. And it's uh, the action is... Like they don't even really have a real fight because it's just a, a gunshot, really. That it's takes just them. a gunshot. He's he's got the dagger over him, and you know the dagger over over Patricia, yeah. and you know Max comes in and makes the one time he's able to make a shot, and it's 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 anticlimactic. I mean, you compare that in, in Yellow Hair and the Fortress of Gold. There's a almost the same scene where you have a near sacrifice, and then then the the guy comes in and shoots, and the way that was framed was so much more interesting with the with the gun coming in the middle of the frame. And it's just like, ah, with the coyote dead, Patricia puts the dagger into this slot on the ceremonial altar. And that is the entrance to the treasure room where they find just tons and tons of gold. Thankfully, the Aztecs were thoughtful to leave sacks so yeah. they could carry it out. Very like, you strong know, sacks. That was yeah, good work. Very strong them. sacks. Yeah. Um, but then the coyote pops up at the last minute and, and you know, but a dagger in the back and a few good roundhouse kicks finishes him off. Uh, I'm guessing Chuck Norris contractually had to land the final kick. Now, folks, you're thinking to yourself, Chris, you made a point to mention that bag of magic that Tall Eagle gave to Patricia. <laughs> that's going to come in at the last minute. She's going to use that as sort of the last thing that's going to save her life and her friend's life. That is not what happens. No. How does that bag of magic get used? <laughs> well, when uh, the coyote is already defeated and lying already down. Defeated. Already yep. done. Dead. On the altar, dagger in his back. Uh, she just takes the bag. She walk No, they're all walking away. She then remembers, oh, she walks back. <laughs> they were already leaving. She walks back to take out that bag and just dump the uh, ashy contents and dirt or whatever on the inside, dump it on him, and uh, I forget what 80s line she says when she does Carol, it. I think she says, thanks, Tall Eagle. That's what it is. There you go. <laughs> but then, it, then his body just bursts into flame. So it's basically just a way to get rid of the evidence that you've killed this dude <laughs> in this ancient temple. Um, Max and Leo and Patricia end up in Fiji, although it looks more like coastal Mexico, where they're enjoying the good life. And, and Leo appears to have the boat he wants. They're drinking champagne. But wait, dun, dun, dun. the bartender 
at the resort is actually the colonel from the ultimate, the opening scene. He says, gentlemen, we meet again. But what's funny about that is he's way too far away for any of the other characters to hear him. He kind of whispers it behind the book. Gentlemen, we meet again. Like they're still drinking champagne, eating lobster. And uh, I guess he shows up at the end of all of their adventures. That's the, that's the running gag. Yeah. The end and beginning of. Yeah. And, and while Firewalker did okay at the box office relative to its budget, we, it didn't do well enough, unfortunately, for us to see more of Max and Leo's adventures. Cause that would have been, I want to know if the Colonel is at the beginning and end of all of them. I, Given 1986, I mean, it didn't do well enough to save Canon films is really what it is. Right. <laughs> no, Given what else yeah, came out that year. Yeah, like, yeah. Well, yes. <laughs> like it, again, no fault of Firewalker. It no, was, no. Firewalker was not the movie that, that was sort of sent Canon into, into its spiral. Uh, but at this point, Canon, having put one of their biggest box office draws in an Indiana Jones adventure, must have thought to themselves, well, why not do it with another one of their marquee stars? So get ready for the American ninja himself, Michael Dudikoff, in River of Death. Deep in the heart of the Amazon jungle lies a world of beauty and of fear. A place where great fortunes can still be found. We are talking about the lost city you may have found off the Rio de Morte, Mr. Hamilton. And great mysteries hidden. It's a myth, Hamilton, forget it. I have maps that located. John Hamilton is a lone adventurer who has stumbled upon a terrible secret. You're really going back there, aren't you? Just give me what I need. Some want to buy him. He's prepared to pay $15,000. And I'm prepared to accept fifty. Some want to sell him out. Someone stabbed the patrol! We're losing power! But he must return to find the truth. Let me warn you, anything that you find belongs to the state. Why are you so cold-blooded? Bergens is paying me, but you? It's not like Bergens is your type. What is my type? Tell them who you really are, what you really want. You won't stop us, Hamilton! This country is going to be ours! 20 years, no one has come for us. Now I am ready to strike. Dudikoff, Robert Vaughn, Donald Pleasance, and Herbert Lom in a film based on the best-selling thriller by the master of suspense, Alistair MacLean. River of Death. River of Death is based on Alistair MacLean's 1981 novel of the same name. MacLean was one of the most prolific and successful authors of adventure novels in the mid-20th century. Many of his books were adapted into movies, including works such as The Guns of Navarone, Ice Station Zebra, and Where Eagles Dare. Many of MacLean's novels feature large casts of colorful characters on some kind of shared mission or adventure. And we'll see how that kind of becomes an issue for this adaptation. The film was written by Andrew Deutsch and Edward Simpson and directed by Steve Carver. Carver spent most of his career working for Roger Corman, for whom he directed movies like uh, The Arena and Big Bad Mama and Capone. He directed two early Chuck Norris movies, uh, An Eye for an Eye and Lone Wolf McQuaid. Uh, River of Death was produced by Harry Allen Towers, 
a British producer who, after being basically run out of America for running a, uh, a, a vice ring in New York City, which had some links to the Kennedy brothers, uh, I kid you not that, that there was rumors that, that a vice and the Kennedys, uh, he eventually made the Christopher Lee Fu Manchu movies of the 1960s, as well as numerous Jess Franco. Oh, uh, excuse me, Chris. I'm leaving this podcast now to start writing my series of novels based on this motherfucker. <laughs> Oh yeah. Fascinating guy. I yeah. mean, you know, it's oh my uh, god. I I'm gonna. He's gonna be my Jake Speed. It's uh, <laughs> <laughs> amazing. It was also produced by Avi Lerner, an Israeli-American producer who worked frequently with Messrs. Golan and Globus. Lerner may have been the reason that River of Death was shot in apartheid-era South Africa, as he was residing there at the time. And he's gone on to do, uh, I mean, he's a big-time producer uh, and produced... Oh, Millennium Films, New Image. Yes. River of Death stars Michael Dudikoff, who had become one of Canon Films' biggest stars at that point, as well as a number of well-regarded character actors kind of late in their career. Robert Vaughn, Donald Pleasance, Herbert Lom, and L.Q. Jones. Uh, the river, the opening credits of this movie should have tipped me off to what it was going to be, because they really focus on the river aspect of meaning that the credits appear over this endless static shot of gentle ripples in the water. And I was almost asleep by the time Steve Carver's name came up. I was just like, I, I was almost passed out by then. Um, we start in the waning days of World War II, specifically April 1945, in what appears to be a concentration camp where human experimentation is is going on. Like it's, this is, for a movie like this, this is pretty dark territory. And I, I have to say, I was... It's surprising to see because for a whole series of films where one of the big tropes that gets carried through by a lot is that Nazi Germany is a bad guy quite often or remnants of Nazi Germany are bad guys. Uh, This is the first one of these films to like fully invoke the Holocaust. Yes. Other people dance around it uh, with the like, oh, you don't want the Germans to have uh, bad weapons. But like no one fully goes there. Except this movie goes there. And and, uh, and more than once. And and we have, we encounter this Nazi who doesn't want to expose his young daughter to the horrors of the Nazis, which is probably a sign, pal, that you shouldn't have been a Nazi if, you, if you're afraid of what your daughter's going to see. Um, but when this Nazi appears to give the slightest concern about what's going on, his Nazi boss, Wolfgang Mentufel, uh, shoots him dead right in front of his daughter. Uh, and this uh, Wolfgang is played by Robert Vaughn, uh, who had been in series such as The Man from Uncle and, of course, uh, the much loved fifth season of The A Team. Yeah. And I didn't catch the Wolfgang part of the Mantoufle <laughs> in the beginning. Yeah. So when Donald Pleasance starts calling him Wolfie, I was Wolfie. very confused. Wolfie. Uh, like, hell of a nickname, Wolfie. Yeah, Wolfie is playing to flee Germany with tons of loot and continue his experiments elsewhere, along with Heinrich Spots a Gestapo officer who's less interested in the cause than in just being rich and getting laid. And he's played by one of my favorite character actors of all time, Donald Pleasance. And there is a very weird dynamic between these two. There's a moment where, where you know, like Wolfie gives Heinrich his father's ring, saying it's his most treasured possession. And, and, and you know, Heinrich takes off all his other jewelry. It's like, I will wear only this ring. And it's really like intense and weird. And I don't know. And, uh, 
But then like two minutes later, he shoots Heinrich in the leg and takes off without him. And the last shot of 1945 is we iris out on Heinrich screaming how he'll find Wilfie. He will be the devil at your back. Yes. <laughs> just, does this, and probably because I fell asleep at several points, does this movie yeah, ever yeah. actually in movie explain why Wolfie no. did that no. to spots? No. Okay. Okay. That's what I thought. Never, never, never yes. does. Never does. Okay. Um, we jump to we jump to April 1965, as guy John Hamilton is taking a party to a remote part of the Amazon in an attempt to track the source of a deadly disease. Going down the river on a boat, I can't believe I'm here with all of these people again in the Amazon. What am I doing here, Saigon? Shit. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it, it, all of this like is 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 framed by Michael Dudikoff's narcoleptic voiceover for this movie. I was just like, uh, you know, it could honestly. I'm gonna record those his voiceover and play it on my iPhone when I need to get to sleep. It'll put me out faster than than like you know the sound of rain on a window. Yes, I don't know where the miscommunication came from or what, because Michael Dudikoff, for anyone who has seen those American Ninja movies... I love the American Ninja movies. He is a fun actor. Yes! This is not uh, a case where, oh, like, with, with, you know, oh, someone who's not trained or can't do things or whatever. No, no, no. I like Michael Dudikoff a lot. Yeah, this is just a miscommunication or bad choices with the director in him. I, I, you know, it's it's hard to say. I, You can see what they're going for. They're going for Martin Sheen yeah. in Apocalypse Now. Absolutely. But maybe you shouldn't do that in a movie who textually, at least, uh, and I don't know about the novel, haven't read it, but you could describe this movie as Apocalypse Now meets Cannibal Holocaust yep. meets, uh, what? Uh, oh, God. The Boys from Brazil. Boys from Brazil, but also, uh, what, like Dr. Zombie, Dr. Zombie MB, MD? No, I'm trying to remember that, uh, <laughs> one of those island zombie movies, yeah. the, the Italian ones where Dr. Butcher MD, Dr. Butcher yeah. MD, that's what it is. I, Rob, I actually read the novel this week in anticipation of the show, just to have the knowledge. I, that's not true. I didn't read it, but I did read about the novel. <laughs> so I will have some, I will give some, you read the spark I notes. There you I should have held that card and <laughs> pretended I really had read the novel. Now it, it's, Obviously, River of Death is striking a more serious tone than Firewalker, but truthfully, it doesn't really justify it. Um, like, it's it's just kind of... I'll just say, the big issue with River of Death is that it's boring. I mean, it is so boring. It, some listeners may remember last year when we did our Get Me Another Star Wars series, we talked about a movie called The Shape of Things to Come, which... Of all of the Star Wars-inspired movies we watched, some good, some not good, this was just flat-out dumb. River of Death is to Raiders of the Lost Ark what the shape of things to come is to Star Wars. And I want to bring up a quote from my co-host, Rob Lamorges, about the shape of things to come. (laughs) And it, it, it applies to River of Death. Quote, if you made a list of the things that happen in this movie, on paper that list would look pretty good. It's just one of those vagaries of actually producing the thing, where sometimes stuff just doesn't turn out like you planned. That is River of Death, right oh, there. Oh, God. Yeah. That sounded pretty good. I'm sure, yeah. I'm sure I said a lot of BS on that one, too. <laughs> <laughs> I, the disco um, helmet. The disco helmet was gonna... <laughs> oh, yeah. 
love that this go helmet. Yeah. But, uh, um, no, but yeah, I mean, I would, I would actually, uh, and it feels weird to say this. I agree with myself about as this. well. You should. Yes. Yes. It's because there, there are interesting things like in the voiceover when, um, there's text about, uh, his remorse, you know, when he leaves yeah. her behind after the father gets killed, jumping ahead. Yes. I know we'll get there, but we'll get there. You can sense in the voiceover, like textually, he's weighing whether or not him going away, is he actually going to get her help or is he being a coward? You get interesting ideas like that in this movie, but it's just not very interesting in watching. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's straight. Like at the beginning, uh, John Hamilton is escorting this doctor, Dr. Blakesley and his daughter, Anna, as they're trying to find the source of the mysterious illness. And they encounter some indigenous tribes fairly early along the way. And, and, and similar to other movies of this time, I, I found myself wondering how accurate the depiction of these indigenous tribes was. Be that as it may, I'm certain it was more accurate than John and Anna's hairstyles which are supposed to be from the 1960s, but looks like they just stepped out of a salon in Beverly Hills in 1985. Uh, If you've listened to the show, you'll know that period accurate hair is kind of a thing with me. And John and Anna just do not have hair you would find in the 60s. People did not wear their hair that way. Dudikoff has way too much product for the period. It just yeah, the, uh, it bothers me intensely. I, I also, while not a, a, not a jean jacket historical expert, just from every photo I've ever seen of stuff from actual <laughs> 60s, I don't think you got the jean jackets with vertical zippers in the 60s. No! Like they did in the 80s. It's, it's so weird because... Like, River of Death is primarily set in the 60s, and it's far less convincing in its period detail than movies we watched that were set in the 20s, 30s, and 40s. Like, there's at one point, there was another character later in the film, and I, I looked at it, and I just I just wrote the note, oh, man, you got that shirt at the Gap. Yeah, yeah. So John, the Doctor, and Anna are eventually captured by a not-so-friendly indigenous tribe. And, and John is able to start a fire in a hut to, to sort of as a distraction uh, while he bursts out the back because Dudikoff don't need no doors. He just bursts out the back of that hut and they run for their lives. But here's the twist, Rob. The natives are joined by men with guns and it's not long before the Doctor is shot dead. Anna is captured and John barely escapes with his life. And as they're floating down, as John is floating down the river, the guy with the gun says, let him go. The jungle will take care of him. And I'm like, dude, you have a gun. Just shoot him, you lazy bastard. Yeah. Like, if, you, if that's your job. Yeah. Also, uh, just to go back, when they do get surprised with the men with guns, uh, that's really the appropriate moment for the uh, Dudikoff did not see that coming. Uh, <laughs> yes. Yeah. There we go. Yeah, it's... It, you know, he, he has this sort of long, surreal and slow trip through the jungle. Uh, you know, he encounters another indigenous tribe. Um, and then he's rescued by construction workers who are in all likelihood destroying the Amazon rainforest and unknowingly dooming the human race. The movie does not get into that. That's my own thing that I'm bringing to the table is that, oh, he's rescued by guys who are literally going to kill us all. I liked oxygen when it was available. That was nice. Uh, you know, I remember strawberries. They were that was good. Strawberries yeah, were yeah. good. 
Yeah. Uh, you know what That's else it. I remember? What's that? The uh, upcoming cabaret scene. Oh my god! Which, yes, it, all right. Because so I, I'm going to demand. Oh. I know we're, we talk about it for whatever the the exposition type stuff that happens. Oh happens. my god! Because it's the one scene that I loved in this movie. So it's I, insane. I, yes, it's yes, insane. Which is what I crave. It's it's so. so John gets back to civilization and he goes to see his supplier, Hiller, who is played by a very recognizable act, character actor L.Q. Jones, who appeared in tons of movies. He guest starred in one of the in the last episode of the 70s Columbo series, which is one of my favorites. Uh, and he also wrote and directed the 1975 post-apocalyptic film, A Boy and His Dog. Starring Don Johnson. Starring Don Johnson. And... Yeah. So he he's great in this movie, not Don Johnson, but uh, not Don Johnson, yeah. but yeah, no, LQ Jones is terrific. And yeah. so John goes and meets this guy at this bar where he tells him that this wealthy businessman is willing to fund his expedition to go back because John feels guilty for leaving Anna. And 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 you know, there's a motivation that I get the wealthy businessman that they're watching this nightclub act, which is like it's like a community theater production of cabaret. Where, with one performer where the, the performer, the woman is singing to this skeleton that is sitting on stage with a cigarette hanging out of its mouth. Yes. And it goes on forever. Something I can share. Come close to me tonight's the night, mine hell. Uh, and, and it's it's such a it's such a striking thing to be cutting to and having in the background while you're doing other bits of business, and it completely overshadows the other bits of business. It's insane. Which, from a story point of view, isn't necessarily the best. Except I want to be at this cabaret show. <laughs> I want, oh god! I, I go don't. The, I, I I was I like, I want to go to the a... after party and drink my espresso with them. Uh, <laughs> I want to see the other performers. Um, just I don't know if there were. I think it was just the one woman forever, forever, like, forever. Well, like that's it. There was the, there was the skeleton. I'm sure he has things to say. Um, <laughs> and... <laughs> to to quote. To, to, to misquote George Orwell, I've seen the future and it's a woman singing to a skeleton forever. forever. Yes. <laughs> like, honestly, that's so distracting. I skipped over the fact that the first time he meets Hiller, it's at a bar where two little people are engaged in a boxing match. Like that, that I, 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 I glossed over because we had this cabaret, which is insane. Yeah. And that's, Ugh. you know, there are things in this movie where you it, it hints at kind of this heightened reality shall we say including just the storyline with the the nazi doctor and the experiments and what he's doing right? right um but the world just never gets that heightened and and the wealthy businessman who's willing to fund the exposition is you know to no one's surprise it's donald pleasance's character heinrich who is now wearing a too terrible toupee uh, he's bald when we see him in 1945 as donald pleasance was he's wearing a terrible toupee for most of this movie uh, and he has a girlfriend who is far too young for him, whose identity is so telegraphed that her dialogue should be in Morse code. It reminded me of, I believe, Prom Night, where you have the beginning and there's one character left who you never deal with. 
And then you see someone later who would fit the bill for that character grown up. Yeah. And then the movie just pretends like you don't know. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the, the little girl whose father was killed and she saw it happen when she was hiding under the table is just a dangling participle. Uh, <laughs> and they just like pretend that, that we don't know. Yeah. And the actress, the actress who plays her is like a combination, she looks like a combination of Mariel Hemingway and Charlize Theron, which in and of itself, that's that's pretty good. But she's got the voice of Brigitte Nielsen. It's uh, it's very, it's all very strange. So like everything else in this movie, it takes them a while to put together the expedition. Uh, they end up going in two helicopters, which they fly in for a while over the jungle. And that's that. That goes on for a while. I do. I do love the revolutionaries who hitch hitch a ride with them. Well, they're, they're, those <laughs> like, two characters—they're they're like Nazi hunters or something. I, I was like, they're Nazi hunters. Yeah, yeah like yeah. And, and like that. One of them, the guy, is the one who had the shirt from the Gap, and 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 I don't, I I don't know if those people lived or died. I don't know what they were doing there, and I don't know if they lived or died because the, the problem, one of the problems with River, aside from just being dull is it's got way too many characters to keep track of and to focus on. Yeah. And most of them appear to have no other function than to get killed. And this must be a holdover from McLean's novels because most, a lot of his books have like big sprawling cast. And that's fine if you're making the guns of Navarone. It's tough if you're making River of Death. And, you know, like I, I have no idea what happened to those Nazi hunters. It's, it's just, I don't know. They so they they sit down in helicopters and they're immediately attacked by river pirates who look like they are straight out of Mad Max and you know and and uh, thankfully they got a grenade launcher that they use to turn back the attack and then like one of the helicopters takes off like guys guys double crosses them and takes off so they go they attack the river pirates at their headquarters. They go right to Barter Town by the sea and blow it up with a bundle of dynamite that looks so much like it came out of a Wile E. Coyote cartoon, it should have had Acme printed on the side. And again, just to explicitly state, that sounds super fun, doesn't it? Like <laughs> it Wile E. Coyote not. blowing up river pirates. It's not fun. Their, river pi- their secret headquarters. Oh, it's so dumb. It sounds amazing, but it's just it just kind of is. Oh, you know? Yeah, it's, it's, it's fucking crazy. And I just... Yeah, it's there. And now they take the pirate's boat. So the movie turns into sort of discount apocalypse now. And they are on that boat forever. Oh, my God. I couldn't. It's just like, what? It does take quite a while to get to the end of the movie. Oh, God. Uh, and nothing yeah. happens. Like, occasionally, like, a, a tribe will show up and shoot arrows at them. And they'll then they'll have a conversation. Yeah. And, you know, and... And uh, there's really one the one unsettling moment where Heinrich goes to John and he tells them that he's a Holocaust survivor. So not only is this guy a Nazi, we know he's a Nazi because we saw the opening of the movie. He's a Nazi masquerading as a as a Holocaust survivor, which uh, I think must entitle him to a very special place in hell. And it's just it's like it's anyway, uh, you know, more characters die along the way that I didn't know and didn't care about. And eventually they get off the boat and the boat is blown up. And then I, I, I got, I, I forgot to mention the chief of police played by Herbert Long. Herbert Long plays the chief of the police of the town and he shows up in a helicopter with yet more characters. And it's like, ah, anyway, Herbert Long shows up, more people die. So finally they, they reach the so-called lost city. And, and uh, the whole time, like, uh, Dudikoff's talking about how uh, he wants to get back to the Lost City. And I'm like, I don't even remember seeing yeah. a city. Like, it just felt like a village. And sure enough, it's really just kind of a lost village. And it turns out that the Nazis 
uh, led by Wolfgang, had set up their base there 20 years ago. And he's been working on this deadly virus the whole time. And and Herbert Lom's chief of police is working for them as well. Now, I have a couple of questions about this. First of all, these guys have all been hanging around in the middle of the Amazon for like 20 years. Why are the, all the Nazis look like they're 35? Like, were they, did he take the, just take Hitler youth? Like, it's, it's like, should it be a bunch of old Nazis? And where are they getting electricity? Because they go into the, the, the temple that they got a lab in the temple and there's clearly electric lights on. And it's, it's like, I don't, I don't understand the society that they're living in. It's just bizarre. Yeah. And I also don't understand because the big scheme in the beginning, we think that they're engineering some sort of disease that will only attack non-white people is kind of the implication. We then find out that that's not the case. Right. They're testing it on the, the local tribes. Yeah. And we find out that's not the case because they infected um, oh, the daughter, Anna, right? <clears throat> and so- Anna. Yeah, we meet Anna one more time and she's been infected and she looks terrible. Like it's all, you know, it's over her face. But like she comes in, she talks to John and then she leaves and that's it. It's like, oh, that we never see her no. again. Did she live? She die? No idea. Because this disease can affect anyone. In the beginning, you think, oh, the Nazis aren't taking any sort of health precautions because they are safe. But now right. you're like, wait, where are your hazmat suits or what? Like gloves even like right. i don't know like what is right. going on this is crazy town apparently all the stuff with with the virus was added for the film in mclean's novel you have a group of nazis who escape to the amazon jungle where they build this set of bizarre society where they live with their descendants as if the third reich had never ended it's like apocalypse now it's like meets the boys from brazil like that's the novel the the whole virus thing was not there it was just you know, you had the two Nazis, one had left the other behind and the other was was like stalking him over the years. The virus thing was just added and I'm just like, why? Like, it's so silly. It starts to go into like Bond villain or beyond territory as far as what they're doing, except the movie doesn't, oh, yeah. it doesn't swing, it, it never gets silly enough to have this, frankly. No, the, the, the silliest thing is the, the leader of the tribe who looks like he is cosplaying Marlon Brando in the island of Dr. Moreau, and he speaks perfect English, he tells John that John is going to be the one to yeah. free his people, that it's like a prophecy and all that. And what's hysterical is like, you, John goes out to like, to, to, to basically attack the Nazis and he's, he's kind of hiding around, like he's hiding around the, the corner and like, he'll shoot a guard or something like that. And then like the, the, the guy dressed like Marlon Brando with like, is, is like kind of following him right behind. And I expected John to just turn around and be like, dude, just give me some space. Okay. I'll fulfill your prophecy, but get off my back. Also hilarious because Frankly, John doesn't fulfill the prophecy. This is another weird one where the hero stands around watching everyone else at the climax. Like, he, he's yeah. not doing anything. The three Germans are shooting it out and they explode each other. Like, he doesn't yeah, save like the, anybody. The, the, the only useful thing that, that Discount Marlon Brando it tells John is that the secret way into the temple lab is through the mouth of the of the statue. So John climbs into the mouth and then he like does a pratfall out of it. And and at the that at that point, Robert Vaughn and Donald Pleasance are like sort of engaged, like they're they're fighting it out. Apparently the toupee on Donald Pleasance's head was intended to disguise him so that his old buddy wouldn't recognize him at first glance. And as ridiculous as that toupee was, it actually worked. Yep. Because 
Wolfie doesn't recognize him until he pulls off the toupee. And then you have these two Nazis fighting in the in the lab. And I, for some reason, John gets in the middle of it. I'm just like, let the two Nazis kill each other. Who gives a shit? Yeah, it's like the 20-year Nazi high school reunion. Like, wait. Yeah. No, really? Hi- Heinrich? You look so different. <laughs> what are you doing now? No, oh. I'm still doing the same stuff. I'll no. be the devil at your back. Oh, God. It's just... He was voted most likely to be the devil at your back in high school. <laughs> yes. It's in the yearbook. Yeah. Uh, I was... I missed out on that. I was supposed to be the most likely to be the devil at your back, but uh, it went to another... It went to somebody else. It went else. to the Jersey Devil, though. So that's... It's hard to compete there, Chris. <laughs> oh. And so... But, like, John doesn't even... Like, he gets in the middle of the Nazi fight, and he doesn't even kill one of them. Nope. Because, guess what? As we may have alluded to earlier or outright stated, the the girl, the girlfriend, is actually the little girl from under the table. Here's the thing. I'm not sure that she killed anybody either. Like, the, like she's got, like, a gun, but, yeah. like, then... And, and I think it's a flare gun, to be honest. But then, then Wolfie grabs a gun off the floor and fires it, and it just looks like it sets everything, like all the chemicals and shit on fire, and the two Nazis go up in flames, which I guess is, that should be what happens. But it's like, why? <laughs> like, we talk about Indiana, like there's the gag, the, the the thing that goes around with like, oh, Indiana Jones has no effect on the outcome of Raiders of the Lost Ark. I don't believe that, but there's people that feel that way. But John Hamilton really has no effect on the outcome of River of Death. Certainly not a prophecy-fulfilling one. Uh, (laughs) Yes. In the end, we see John being rowed down the river in a canoe. And uh, questions such as, did anybody else survive? What about the vengeful daughter? What about the two Nazi hunters? What about that disease? Did that disease get out into the world? No clue. We have no idea. None of these. None of these issues are even remotely addressed. It's just some some last, you know, Willard esque voiceover. For- this isn't a river of death, Chris. It's a river of unresolved plot. <laughs> oh my god. Oh, so you know, we end our get me another Indiana Jones series not with a bang but with a coma. And and I'll ask the question I always ask. What, what did we learn, Rob? What did we learn from this endeavor? Well, Batman's an iconic character, right? Sure. That was a series we started with first, but I felt that things, you know, went further afield. You know, people were trying other pulp heroes. By the time you get to Mystery Men, there has been a lot of evolution yeah. Yeah. In, in those films. And, you know, Halloween, you had other stalkers, but they were often very different from Michael Myers, right? Yes. Um, You could say the couple's in the rom-coms often very different and different kinds of relationships than when Harry met Sally. Indiana Jones is such a singular cinematic character that this one, you felt much more in more of the films, not all of them, where people really, really, really wanted to just have Harrison Ford in their movie dressed like he was in Raiders. Yeah. And they were going to do their damnedest to do whatever they could to kind of make that happen when they knew they could have neither of those things, right? Yeah, yeah. And the most successful ones are the ones where you have a character who then has combines with other characters with chemistry that really works. Like, yes. Firewalker almost gets there. Romancing the Stone gets there. Well, and, and Romancing the Stone is one of the more successful because, uh, in part, because it was from before. So yeah. they, are, they aren't going quite as hard with having an Indiana Jones character. Um, the Quartermain movie, or I'm sorry, 
Quater Main. Quater Main. Well, I have to drop the, the first R. The, the R. You don't want to have quarter, that R even though the movie has it's, it. It's Quater Main. Yeah. Quater. Anyway. Uh, so in any case, now that we realize I can't remember things from a few weeks ago, <laughs> I just wanted to say that that character was probably the closest for me from just full on wanting your own Indiana Jones and crafting yeah. movies around it. And Chamberlain and his his uh, chemistry with Stone is like that. But these movies yeah. just seem a lot less about the plot. It's character and location and treasure. Yeah, that's it. That's all. And, and it's interesting because the Quartermain, uh, uh, you know, character is one of is is. He is kind of to Indiana Jones what what you saw in other series like with the Phantom and the Shadow yes. for Batman with uh with Flash Gordon and Buck Rogers uh for for Star Wars it's like oh we we're gonna take that that character from th- that is a precursor that inspired the original work that we're starting from and then you know and then do a new version of it so it and feels like Quarterman yeah. is kind of fitting into that 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 vibe and, and it's a it's a shame we never got our arnold schwarzenegger doc savage movie that uh, oh that would have that been fascinating been, yes that yeah that would have been fascinating uh, it's uh yeah and and as we wrap up this initial wave of adventure films that came in the wake of raiders of the lost ark we're not finished with these kinds of films by a long shot we are already planning bonus episodes for movies you know like the mummy uh, for Lara Croft Tomb Raider, uh, for National Treasure, for our for one of our super fans, Jay has has uh, has requested National Treasure, so we are going to do that sooner rather than later. And Rob, I know you're a big fan. I am a super fan, yes, of National Treasure. Uh, oh yeah, so much so that I call the sequel NT two. No one calls the sequel <laughs> NT two, Chris, but me. <laughs> Oh, that's fantastic! No, we're we're gonna do that. We'll we'll even do the Indiana Jones. We'll do the Indiana Jones sequels at some point down the road. Um, but as we mentioned at the beginning of the show, we are hard at work on a new "Get Me Another" series for this fall. Now, I will pull back the curtain a little bit to our process here at "Get Me Another." We originally were going to do a different series. We had a different series in mind for this fall, but with both the WGA and SAG after on strikes, strikes that we very strongly support. Rob is a union member. Yep. I still aspire to be one, um, and we wanted to be very careful about doing anything that could be seen as promoting work owned by companies that are being struck against. Yeah, SAG-AFTRA has, the WGA has not asked this. That's the member of the, I'm, that's the union I'm a member of. But SAG-AFTRA has asked to not promote any struck work from a current struck company, no matter what period in time. Now that request happened after we were already, you know, X number of episodes in here. And and from that yeah. time on, we have only been covering canon films and, and those sorts of things. Yeah, and there's actually, there was an episode that we are going to do for this series that we had to drop that was that was studio uh, films that we will come back to and do as a bonus episode, uh, you know, for sure. And, uh, you know, you can if you look at some of our early postings when we were before this series started, you could figure out what movies uh, that would have been. But we will come back and do those as a bonus episode. And we're very excited for them when we are on the other side of this strike, hopefully, hopefully soon. Yeah. You know? But with spooky season coming up, luckily yes. horror movies, that's that's one where you can easily steer clear of big budget studio stuff if uh if yes. you so desire. We took a deep we took a, 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 a deep journey into the get me another vault where we keep 
the master lists of series we eventually want to do. And one jumped out at us that we are excited for, not only for the spooky season, but will consist of films not owned by major studios. I uh, And I think when we grabbed that list, we had just put on our uh, squeaky black leather squeaky gloves. black gloves yes, yes. indeed because we hope you'll join us this october as we dive into the strange and suspenseful world of giallo with get me another bird with the crystal plumage few films have led to such a massive genre boom as daria argento's 1970 suspense classic Within a few years, a wave of giallo thrillers with colorful, lurid titles flooded Italian cinemas from filmmakers including Sergio Martino, Lucio Fulci, Aldo Lado, and of course, Mario Bava, and many, many more. It is going to be a wild series, and we could not be more excited. So we hope you'll join us in October for Get Me Another Bird with the Crystal Plumage. But before that, we hope you come back in three weeks for our second Don't Get Me Another episode, Don't Get Me Another Megaforce. And we are very excited for that, too. That is going to be that is going to be fantastic. Deeds, not words, Chris. Although I guess we're a podcast, so probably words, not deeds. It's all words. It's all words. We hope you have enjoyed taking this journey with us. Again, we are your hosts, Chris Iannacone and Rob Lamorges. If you've enjoyed our show, please consider subscribing and following us on Twitter, Instagram, and threads at Get Me Another Pod. And as always, tell your friends about the show. Tell your enemies about the show. Tell that dude cosplaying Marlon Brando in the island of Dr. Moreau about the show. And join us next time as we continue to explore what happens when Hollywood says, Get me enough. Something I can share. Come close to me, tonight's the night, mine hell. Take off your frown and come in to my fantasy world. A taste of my lipstick, there may be more. I want to dance with you tonight. So close to you.